Mission 2, San Jose Avenue. From our 901 Mission Street studios, you are listening to the San Francisco Chronicle. When Jello Biafra came to the Chronicle recently for the first time, he didn't disappoint. The former Dead Kennedy singer was more than an hour late. He arrived with four t-shirts that he changed throughout the visit, including one that he wore during the podcast that said, Don't Trust Corporate Media. He asked if we could talk to sports editor Al Sarasovic, who he's known for more than 20 years. I'm still not sure the details how they met. Al joins us on the podcast. We talked about Jello Biafra's upcoming 60th birthday show at the Great American Music Hall. We got deep into his 1979 run for mayor against Dianne Feinstein. And we talked sports. Jello Biafra, punk legend, likes sports. But it all came back to music. Here's Jello Biafra talking about the first time he heard loud music and realized, this life is for me. Yeah. I was in second grade, fall of 1965. My father was trying to get me to shut up and go to sleep. Brings the radio into the room, turns it on. He's going this way and that way and landed on a rock station. K-I-M-N in Denver, you know, commercial AM station. What did I know? Leave it there! I like that! And then there was no stopping me. I mean, with a few little side detours, I kind of knew what I wanted to be when I grew up right then and there even if I had no musical talent except my voice and my terrible attitude and eventually my (laughs) ability to write lyrics when I realized nobody else was going to say what I wanted to say. A few more things before we start. Most of the big event podcasts are designed for easy listening while you make your kids breakfast. This is not one of them. There's some profanity and adult content. This is a very freewheeling interview. Jello Biafra spent enough of his life fighting censors. I wanted to let him have his say, even when he was totally incorrect about the Chronicle. We do outstanding investigative work. Our digital stuff is great. We recently won Emmys. Get a subscription now. And finally, he came in hot, and I couldn't wait to get the microphones on. So there's a bad audio transition in the first minute. It's jarring. Apologies for that. I'm Peter Hartlob, and this is The Big Event. So welcome to the San Francisco Chronicle, Jello Biafra. Um, yeah, I don't think I've ever been in this building before. Yeah, in some ways I'm kind of amazed the Chronicle still exists. You're in better shape than the Denver Post or, uh, you know, what's left of the Examiner or whatever. And I just, uh, you know, seeing the, uh, isn't it? Isn't that movie of Meryl Streep as Catherine Graham, isn't that called The Post or something? What is that name of that thing? That is The Post. The- yeah. Saw that and then saw Deadline USA, a nail-biter newspaper noir with Humphrey Bogart almost back-to-back and just realized how much fun newspapers are. Not reading online stuff on my phone while I'm stuck in the checkout line (laughs) at Rainbow. No. Um, You know, the, the whole newspaper action is its own cool thing. Plus, the main time I ever have time to just chill and read is either in the bathtub or on the toilet. Well, and devices and water don't mix. <laughs> well, uh, we, we sincerely welcome you to the Chronicle. It's been too long if you haven't been here before. With Al Sarasovic, who, our sports editor, 
You guys know each other. Yeah. yeah. Special guest starring with uh, Mr. Viopper <laughs> here. You said, where are the two places you read? On the bathroom and the... Uh, and, and the bat. You know you know my thing. I melt in really hot water and then stretch my body out so I can carry on like the fool I am if I'm on stage. It's, it's, when I'm on stage. It's, it's one of my running parlor bits or uh, uh, um, dinner party jokes is that when I took over the sports department, I felt like I was in charge of everybody's morning constitutional. So I got you while you're in the bathroom. You can read the sporting green, but it's good to see you. Yes, we know each other. From uh, we had a mutual friend many many years ago. But, well, we uh, still do. Yes, we do. She's and, uh, off in Virginia Beach raising her child. This now. is true. This is true. You look great, man. Thanks for coming down. I do. Yeah. <laughs> sixty. Happy birthday to you. <laughs> I'm not sixty yet. Don't okay. cur- don't do that to me yet. It's not till Sunday. Not till so-, <laughs> so you've got a gig coming tick, up. Tick tick. Yeah. Great American Music Hall. Yeah. Yeah. Tell me a little mm. bit about that. Well, my favorite venue to this day, and. Uh, yeah, well, it's the 10th anniversary of Biafra 5.0, which we had there, and I launched my current band on that night as a kind of birthday present to myself, put off the male menopause, get my mojo back, and, you know, spoken word has been a very good thing, but I just really needed to get back to rock. I had all these songs piled up and stuff, so finally found some people who were willing to put up with me and play with me and do the, uh, I sing them the parts, they figure out how to play them, we find the right key, and bang. Damn, these uh, songs come out. I mean, I wrote most of Dead Kennedy's music, too, as well as the lyrics, so it's not as though I've forgotten the old family recipe, and I don't really try to consciously stick to that, but my songs just come out sounding like my songs. So mostly what we're going to play on Sunday, along with the Phantom Limbs are going to play with us, one of those unique punk bands ever to come out of the Gilman Street scene. You know, they're almost like electric harpsichord driven or something with a really good front man, a very unique sound. More like Punk Gilbert and Sullivan than like the Screamers, but <laughs> needs to be seen. And an opening is a uh, kick-ass new all-female garage rock band from half Arizona, half LA called The Darts. And most of what Guantanamo School of Medicine, my band, is going to play is mostly stuff no one has heard before. You know, we're getting new stuff together. <laughs> oh, all right. You got a new album? You gonna Not tour? yet. I mean, this would theoretically be part of it or part of the recordings, although this time when we record, I just kind of want to record the songs and then figure out what exactly to do with them at a time when some people just put out up one single online or on Bandcamp and then that's that or, uh, you know, if it doesn't feel like an album at a time when people like us, meaning me and Alan, possibly you, <laughs> like albums, but other people are more, you know, short attention span, one song at a time or streaming or whatever, you know, I, I, I'm, I like to make albums. Eventually there's going to be an album. Yeah. I don't know what's going to go where with the current batch. How would you just say, I'll jump it in here for a sec. Uh, how would you describe this band sound to, to what you were doing back in the day? Well, um, it came after I did two albums and some live shows, including more music hall shows and Biafra Five O was part of it, um, with the Melvins. And the Melvins, I would have, dis- the stuff where they, the Jelvins, as people called it, I would describe as uh, <coughs> kind of halfway between Dead Kennedys and Lard, the more uh, super heavy wall of sound cyber metal thing I worked on with Al and Paul from Ministry. And uh, so it was halfway between that. And, and Guantanamo School of Medicine is kind of like, uh, I don't know, halfway between the Jelvins and Dead Kennedys. It's heavier 
but it's the, the surf and the psych moves are back in, and that's the first time I've had a band that's my band since Dead Kennedys. I, I have a lard album here that I'm going to let you <laughs> borrow for the way home because okay. it's great. I, everything you've done, it seems like, even within the Dead Kennedys catalog, it's never like the thing before it. Um, oh, I, I try for that. I mean, I take great pride, and not even the two lard albums are, sound alike. So, uh, you know, it, it's not really totally self-consciously planned that way. It, it kind of was that way, although... When we were able to do the Fresh Fruit for Rotting Vegetables album, the first Dead Kennedys album, the one with the burning police cars in front of City Hall on the cover from the Dan Hoyt night riots and yeah. stuff, um, that, that one, it was very rare that an underground punk band was able to make an album in those days here. I mean, the major labels decided in early 1978, we don't want any more punk. You put the little necktie on and sing about the radio and call yourselves New Wave. Maybe we'll sign you. So the people who stayed underground did it because they wanted to. The, the stars and the eyes went away because they're, you know, you played because you wanted to, and thus the sound got fiercer and fiercer. So hardcore was coming in. We had later songs like Bleed For Me and Halloween and even Moon Over Marin. We had like two-plus albums of material, so I thought, well... Some bands, when they get to make an album, they make what they they use whatever is their most recent stuff, and forget about some really good early stuff that then gets lost. The Go Go's being a good example of that. But you know, the early stuff when they used to open for Dead Kennedys, believe it or not, here it was really like Phil Spector meets the Ramones, direct. And um, so I thought, okay, let's put the earlier ones on Fresh Fruit and gamble. Roll the dice. We're going to get to make another album. <laughs> And in the meantime, then the DC hardcore explosion happened, and so we made some of that and made that the In God We Trust Incorporated EP, which the people overseas were furious about because they weren't ready for hardcore at all, and then, uh, and then went back and did the more adventurous uh, Plastic Surgery Disasters album, which I think is my favorite of all the dead Kennedy ones, kind of edging out Frankenchrist at the end of the day. I mean, it's darker, it's more us, it's more unique. It took a lot out of me to make it, nearly killed me, but, uh, you know, that, I, I think that's my personal favorite. I mean, I like the fact that with Dead Kennedys alone, people argue among themselves over which one is the best or their favorite or, you know, struck the right nerve at the right time. And, you know, it's all always wonderful to be a gateway drug, to spread... Uh, positive disease in a time when, uh, you know, the, the, the aim is to make people, you know, obedient techno drones as much as possible. I, Alternative Tentacles started very early. Um, you're putting out these albums, but I'm going through the Chronicle archives. And in addition to having this record label and having this band, you had the police raiding your house. You had an obscenity trial. This seems like it would take a lot of... And I ran for mayor and helped force <laughs> Feinstein into a runoff with her most hated rival at the time, Quentin Cop. I mean, like Ed Lee, she said, oh, you make me acting mayor, I won't run for a real term. Cop on the Board of Supervisors casted a fighting, fighting vote to make Diane the Wicked Witch of San Francisco the uh, acting mayor. And then practically the next day, she's running for a real term, and old Quentin never forgave her. So those two got forced into a run runoff. I was fourth, actually, and David Scott, who was running from the uh, gay community, was uh, 
the third place finisher, but together it resulted in some kind of a spokesman for Feinstein saying something to the effect afterwards, if somebody like Jello Biafra gets this many votes, this city is in real trouble. Because there were only, what, 100, 200 punk rockers at the time, and hardly any of them <laughs> voted, and I got almost 7,000 votes. Yeah. You know, I was a protest vote by people who uh, didn't dig where our own local Margaret Thatcher was taking things. Yeah. And that was 79 yes. that you ran. Yeah. Um, Fresh Fruit for Rotting Vegetables is not out yet. No, How no, we didn't have anything. Oh, and I guess we had uh, the California Uber Alice single out, which at the mm. time, you know, was <coughs> the first Alternative Tentacles record. And East Bay Ray was basically trying to get rid of 500 copies out of the trunk of his car. And then by pure dumb luck, a red-hot independent label in... Uh, Great Britain called Fast Product from Scotland, whose early singles had kind of set the world on fire. Gang of Four debut, Human League debut, Mekons debut. Their first compilation had a band called Joy Division on it. So everybody was watching them. And then we get contacted by Fast. They wanted to release California Uber Alice overseas. And oh, what, what do you think you're going to do? With, oh, we probably should sell 30,000 of them the first day. And I'm like, what? I don't believe this. It's not as though we were the best band at the time or uh, the most popular. It just it was just this pure dumb luck and knowing what to do with it and not just drowning it all in drugs. Yeah. Was that more about Reagan or the the, the Brown family? It it was a it, it was about Jerry Brown yeah. at the time, and then. Uh, you know, because I, I was still fresh off the boat from Boulder, Colorado, which mm -hmm. is kind of even then a a unique disease of a town. It's a very beautiful place. I always like going back for a while. But uh, in the mid-70s, when I was like an agro hippie who liked the Stooges and the MC5 and Black Sabbath, most people by then, it was like, oh, no, you got to mellow out, man. Everything's be chill. You don't want to do anything too harsh. And this isn't me. This isn't even the anti-Vietnam War hippies. What is this mellow-drone crap? I mean, the terms yuppie and new age hadn't come out yet. And then I thought, you know, these people, I mean, you can't go half a block in Boulder without bumping into some charlatan gurus, followers or something, and more people looking for one to follow, like shopping for somebody to tell them what to do and what to think. And I thought that was very dangerous and realized only one politician in the United States who had national ambitions understood that. You know, what I did, but in that, in that vacuum, they, 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 there was the California Borales song, oh, I came up with this conspiracy theory all by myself, blah, blah, blah. But then, in storms Reagan into power, while I was still over in England for the first big, bigger Dead Kennedys tour after Fresh Fruit came out, and I realized, oh my God, this is vastly worse. I was wrong. So uh, I rewrote the song about Reagan and retitled it, We Got a Bigger Problem Now. And then, like some of these older American folk songs where the lyrics keep changing, I did a Schwarzenegger one, too. <laughs> you know, steroids for the master race, so you all can have my face. You know, there's a live version of me doing that one with the Melvins. I think recorded at the Music Hall, actually, on the second of the two albums I did with the Melvins, which is called Sig Howdy. And the best part is now you have Jerry Brown back. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah but it was sir. a very different situation where he got in because he was kind of the only adult left in He's the room. He's been great this time around. And, well, I wouldn't call him great. He's pro-fracking, and I really don't understand. The same Jerry Brown who was all fired up at Earth First rallies I went to is pro-fracking. Yeah. I don't get that. 
But, uh, you know, Brown, like Obama, doesn't seem that motivated by money. But at the same time, you wonder sometimes why they haven't used their leadership power to ban fracking, for example. (laughs) But on the other hand, he came in this time with a gutted tax base, Proposition 13, the schools going broke. And the mere fact that he got people to vote a tax increase to at least partially make the schools so they could actually educate people again, you know, it's an awfully small accomplishment. But in today's times, everything else going on and people brainwash from kindergarten that taxes are automatically bad, you know, that's quite an accomplishment. So Jerry Brown, not all bad? (laughs) Uh, No. Yeah. No, I mean, even back then, no, I just didn't like the man on the white horse comment and, you know, I'll move left and right at the same time. You watch me, which he kind of has over the years. Yeah. Although, although uh, considering who's in the driver's seat to be the next governor, we are freaking doomed. <laughs> the Mitt Romney of the Democrats. I mean, if you think Feinstein was a cruel mayor. Gavin Newsom comes, oh, yeah, I'm a self-made businessman, even though I grew up in the Getty Mansion, and uh, I hate the homeless. Vote for me. And he got away with that for two terms, but there's an article that should be in the Bay Guardian archives where Tim Redmond, towards the end of his second term, just laid out what a complete failure Newsom was as a mayor, how little he accomplished, how many things he screwed up, including somehow getting away with losing a major sports team and whatnot. And... uh, You know, and he just kind of goes right on. I mean, the things back then I remember well were he was very childish, a la Nixon and Trump, in his inability to get along with his own board of supervisors and total inability to get along with the media. Remember when he tried to run for governor eight years ago, nine years ago, and called himself the California Obama? How cynical is that? This is the I hate the homeless guy. And went down to Hollywood to round up a bunch of money, and nobody gave him any because they wanted Jerry Brown. And so he took the trophy wife from the Siebel fortune and stormed off to Hawaii. For how long was it? He disappeared. The mayor disappeared on his city for, what, a week or more because he was mad. I, I can't fathom that he was married to Kimberly the, the, I was just going to go I mean, there. How is She's that dating possible? a Trump. It's unbelievable. <laughs> well, he, ba- he based, yeah, I mean, Kimberly Guilfoyle, for those who don't remember, she was the ex-underwear model turned headline-hogging prosecuting attorney who prosecuted the two people who owned the dogs who mauled the woman to death in the... Press a canario case. Yeah, yeah. And then um, she parlayed that into marrying Newsom. Then she decided she got tired of that and went off to New York and went to Fox News. And now she's dating a guy who kind of looks like Newsom. And I think it's more than skin deep, the resemblance, by the name of Donald Trump Jr., yeah, I mean, some people have, can't make it up. Some people just have terrible taste in men. I mean, <laughs> this even tops Lindsey Vaughn dating both Tiger Woods and Tim Tebow in recent years. Hey, now we're talking sports. I like <laughs> it. I knew we were going to get to sports. I got to ask though: Did you ever debate Feinstein? Uh, not really. Um, you know, I, I was so you know I, I was still kind of trying to learn how to live on my own and deal with a band and whatnot. So I. Uh, I didn't do all I could have to really cause trouble in that campaign. And all of a sudden, all these invites to all these gatherings were coming into my mailbox every day. And where is this place? I mean, I I can't do all this. So I wound up only doing a handful of them. One of them was in the basement of the big 
church up on Knob Hill or whatever, and uh, everybody but Feinstein showed up yeah. at that one. So I got to see Quentin Cop kind of coming across as Charles Nelson Riley and Big Bird at the same time, and then. Uh, Oh boy, a bunch of, oh, I am Tibor Usker, you for unique, it's for this, you know, the other candidates were what made that so much fun. There was a Lyndon LaRouche follower named Patricia <laughs> Dole Beer, who just had this permanent scowl etched in her face. She looked like Feinstein does now, and she probably wasn't even 40. And, and she was, Diane Feinstein is a drug pusher. Trying, conspiring with Chinese communists to sell drugs to our children. <laughs> you can't, again, you can't make this stuff up. Right. And so there was that one. And finally, there was another one. It was uh, in the, somewhere in the Fairmont. I think it was radio, but everybody was there. And that was the only time I was ever in the same room with Feinstein. Just kind of blew in, dressed in black, and just total dragon lady vibe from the get-go. And it's, oh, hello, how nice to see you. Just being so, you know, bearing fangs that everybody shouldn't talk to me at all. But that was the closest I ever came to uh, encounter, you know, encountering the Wicked Witch of San Francisco. Do, do you remember your platform? I, I actually was looking back at old articles, and I saw one of them was statues of Dan White to throw tomatoes and eggs at? I believe was rocks part of it too. I can't remember. <laughs> I mean, this was after Proposition 13 was gutting the tax base, so we had to replace the money. So I thought, okay, we can raise money for the parks by selling the eggs and the tomatoes. And <laughs> we'd have a line clear out Golden Gate Park halfway <coughs> down Haight Street. And then uh, another one was to legalize panhandling on a 50% commission where the city keeps half and the people begging change keep half, concentrating on Pacific Heights where Feinstein's place was on Lyon Street, although by then she was living at Richard Blum's place in Marin. I mean, as far as I know, her whole t two terms as mayor, she actually lived in Marin County. But, uh, you know, so, so there was I that. I like the panhandling platform when you think of what's happened to this city. Oh, I, mean, I know, I know. Crazy. I mean, Kind of just in that perspective from you, you've, you know, you're from Boulder, you've talk about that a lot, but um, you've been here for a long time now. I mean, yeah. it's crazy what's happening in San Francisco, no? Oh, I, well, it has been for a while, and it's just uh, it's third world level inequality, like what Reagan's budget director, David Stockman, called the Brazilian model mm -hmm. way back when. We don't have favelas yet. We have temporary ones in the form of the tents, and I get freaked out by them too, but not maybe for the same reasons some people do. I think, oh my God, this is what it's come to. This is, you know, how Newsom and Ed Lee and now London Greed or Farrell or whoever are saying, you know, well, okay, we don't want you. You get to live like this until we clear you away. And, you know, the cars are roaring by, you're sleeping on the cement, you're getting rained on. When I saw little children's bicycles locked on a fence near one, I'm like, oh my God, there's families doing this too. What have, and what gets me all wound up is what have we become as a country where we are allowing this to happen? That's there it. are some <laughs> countries, the ones that Trump now scorns among our allies, who are, who are like, poverty is a problem. We don't get rid of the poor people. We get rid of the poverty. How do we do this? Yeah. Well, it, I mean, I mean, I mean London, right London, London yeah. greed saying tough love, that's a code word for stuff like care, not cash. I hate the homeless vote for me. Tough love is a Trump kind of word. You know, this is getting nasty. Did you, uh, clearly, I 
I've listened to a lot of your early music lately, and, and you were very upset then. Did you think it could get worse? I've often thought, you know, maybe I should quit <laughs> writing these songs and spoken word pieces of worst-case scenario situations because they keep coming true. <laughs> well, I, I, wondering about now, I mean, living here and continuing to live here, have you thought about leaving? Are you living in San Francisco oh, now? I and... almost left 2000, 2001. And then uh, that dot-com bubble burst, and suddenly there was district, there election, was <laughs> district elections for supervisors, and all these brown and machine puppets got voted out and kicked to the curb pretty emphatically and stuff. And uh, so I stuck around. It's getting more difficult now, but the other thing is thing like, oh, where would I go? Do that other thing, hmm, maybe I should go to Seattle, maybe even Portland, but... I don't do well in super muggy, rainy climates. And then I got a call from Art Chantry, an artist friend of mine from done a lot of album covers from up in Seattle. But it wasn't Seattle. It was a St. Louis area code of all places, St. Louis. Art, why did you move to St. Louis? It was the only place I could afford to buy a house. And, you know, I just got so sick of Seattle with all these yuppies and all these traffic jams and gentrification. Like, oh, my God, he's describing San Francisco. Okay, <laughs> I ain't going to Seattle. And even though there'd probably be more opportunities for me if I moved to L.A., and stuff, not just another crop of musicians, but the occasional kooky acting gig or cartoon voices. I mean, I was born to do cartoon voices. I am a cartoon, but have uh, you ever done one? Um, one, yeah, for it. something in Australia that was, uh, you know, he directed me via Skype while I was in a recording <laughs> studio, and but I'm not sure what happened. Uh, Neil Hamburger and Henry Rollins are on that one too. But I don't know what happened to it. It was more of a claymation thing. So you're but, stuck here in San Francisco for eternity. Yeah, for now. Or at I, least I mean, until you turn 60. Now, I mean, I did do a song, an early part of Guantanamo School of Medicine that got all kinds of, uh, you know, angry tweet bird feedback at the SF Weekly called Dot Com Monte Carlo. And that was almost, you know, eight or nine years ago when I did that one. <laughs> And why is he still so cranky? He's too old. He's me. And other people know he's, those, he's describing San Francisco perfectly now. And at that point, the final verse was something. Look at that giant middle finger they put up by the Bay Bridge, the one on the Rincon Rock or whatever. 50 stories of, of yuppie kettles just for them. They want to put up more and more on slippery landfills so when the big quake comes, we'll drink a toast, blah, 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 and watch it all fall down. And guess what's built on landfill and Newsom rammed it through? The Salesforce Tower, which who knew from looking... Oh, oh, it's just so obnoxious. I mean, that's again what you talk about. Am I thinking of leaving? Every time I look out my bedroom window, and I got a pretty good view, even though the Bay Bridge is now blocked by those high-rise techie kennels and stuff, and I see that Salesforce Tower with an even bigger middle finger, although it looks more like a giant dildo, staring back at me with a big, you know, a big giving everybody here the finger. I'm like, how much longer do I want to be here? But again, where would I go? So I, I want you to rank three things for me uh, in terms of what, what's the worst. Uh, uh, Donald Trump, uh, the technocrats in this, uh, the tech society here, uh, what it's doing in San Francisco, or the Eagles. I remember you ranting oh, about the boy. Eagles. Your what Eagles, a tough choice. Your Eagles have, rant are, are I epic. have to say, because of the uh, 
<laughs> the amount of violence, not all of it physical, that the guy does to people and, and the disadvantaged all over the world on a daily basis, I would say Trump and Trumpism and our corporate lords' embrace of the whole thing, you know, those giant tax cuts for rich people and stuff, that's the reason they put up with him in there. That was part of the scam. They realized, oh, my, yeah, he is the worst. I mean, it was like, oh, my God, we don't even have to try and advertise <laughs> or sell a Jeb right. Bush or a... Marco Rubio or whatever to anybody when this guy already has so many fans. He doesn't just have fans. He has a cult following. We will pretend to panic while under the table, you know, just get out the bellows and stoke the fire because we can get away with so much more with a blowhard like that sucking the air out of the room on every single day's news cycle. So most people have no idea what Betsy DeVos or Ryan Zinke or Scott Pruitt or Mike Pence or Jeff Sessions are really up to, mm -hmm. not just to drag us back to the 1950s, but to the 1850s. That sounds like a good song. <laughs> oh, yeah, that, that, that's part of... Uh, yeah, we were going to do that, do that one on Sunday. It's called Tea Party Revenge Porn. <laughs> I was trying to get you to go off on the Eagles. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, they, they, they are one of my worst bands. On the, on, I just on the remember sitting around, at your, yeah, sitting around at your house, and you would, you, would, you would rant about it, and it was just the funniest thing I'd ever heard. So, I, What was it about the Eagles that you hated so much? Well, I think it was that whole country rock, cocaine, cowboy thing. Not only was the music so good, ghastly for the most part but one of the ground zero testing grounds for it was the denver boulder area uh -huh. so we were just you're oh, force fed the, yeah uh... force fed firefall who were la guys slumming in boulder i mean there was that there was all the other people who wanted to be firefall the only good part was it meant things like getting fun house by the stooges the greatest album any band ever made sealed for 10 cents the downside was it took years for me to find anybody else I knew who liked the Stooges. <laughs> and a lot of those people, the one, the lonely people in these cultural desert towns or even empty cities where it was nothing but, you know, eagle cover bands clogging the bars or arena rock. That was the two choices, even here. Um, a lot of those people all migrated to a handful of cities where they met other Stooges fans other Velvet Underground fans who were hip to what the Ramones were and the Sex Pistols and everything else. And that's how the talent explosion, the punk explosion, 1977 up till, well, now basically, started. Do you remember the first song or first album or first time you heard music and just said, wait, that's for me? Oh, quite vividly, yeah. <laughs> I was in second grade, fall of 1965. My father was trying to get me to shut up and go to sleep. Brings the radio into the room, turns it on. He's going this way and that way and landed on a rock station. K-I-M-N in Denver, you know, commercial AM station. What did I know? Leave it there. I like that. <laughs> and then there was no stopping me. I mean, with a few little side detours, I kind of knew what I wanted to be when I grew up right then and there. Even if I had no musical talent except my voice and my terrible attitude and eventually my <laughs> ability to write lyrics when I realized nobody else was going to say what I wanted to say. So, uh, I, I mean, the, the, the Walter Mitty did kind of make a detour a couple of years later when the Batman TV show came out. I mean, still the best TV show ever made if you watch it as an adult. And when other kids were writing, when I grow up, I want to be a baseball player. I want to be a policeman. I want to be a fireman or the girls. I want to be a nurse. 
I want to be the Riddler. I want to be the Penguin. Those are my role models. <laughs> and so from there to Santa Cruz, briefly. Yeah, real briefly. But then something about San Francisco... Well, you? I was already getting drawn into punk and wanting to do something because I'd seen the Ramones in Denver opening for another like up and coming FM radio band that didn't really get anywhere and stuff. And a few of us were lining the front row and I kind of laughed at them before that. I mean, there were these funny, goofy little songs, beat on the brat with a baseball bat, no guitar solos. Look at these guys. Then when they played, I mean, one chord on Johnny's guitar, and we knew it was going to be way louder than we thought it was. And then they just blew the roof off of this, you know, country rock and jazz fusion testing ground known as Ebbets Field. That was the name of the club. And uh, it was not only they were so powerful, they were so good, but I kept looking around at all the rock biz glitterati who were sitting behind us waiting to see the other band and these dudes with their shades, their Kenny Loggins hairdos and beards and their corduroy jackets with patches and the women all had 20s do's and the Joni Mitchell flower because that was what Joni Mitchell was looking like that year or whatever. And they couldn't leave. There were no ins and outs. And, so the, and it was a total sit-down club that had little like they, they it went up a little bit like a tiny little baseball stadium or something and they were horrified they were like stop this and we were like they were going no 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 we're thinking yes 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 and it was not only god it's so powerful but so simple anybody could do this i could do this Maybe I should do this. And the gears started turning, not just with me, but some of my friends like Joseph Pope, who also moved out here with his brother, Johnny Risk, who was another high school classmate and started that band, Onks, who was a San Francisco-based band on the SST label. Mm -hmm. The Wax Tracks label came out of that Ramon show because the original Wax Tracks store, which still is there and a great store in Denver, you know, that the, 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 the Jim and Dan, Jim Nash and Danny Flesher were there and a lot of their people and uh, the ravers who later moved to New York and became the nails who had that hit 88 lines about 44 women. They were, they saw that show, Don Fleming of Velvet Monkeys and Gumball and now uh, Lomax Archives fame. He was stationed in the, he was in the Air Force stationed at Lowry, which was a base in the middle of Denver. He was there. And a guy who didn't know anybody back then and lived out of town claims he was there by the name of Al Jorgensen. <laughs> of large. The and, the, and the, and the Ramones were doing that here. were right. doing that all over the country, and they knew that they were planting these seeds, and they were very, you know, the very fact that me coming from the arena rock world, you could go backstage and talk to the Ramones, and they would talk to you. And I was like, oh my God, I'm talking to a rock star. Wow. What what were those early shows like? Uh, I'm thinking like 79 and 80 before. So we're, we're moving back. We're back in San Francisco now. Yeah, right? yeah. yeah. Well, um, I mean, my, my brief college career of one quarter at UC Santa Cruz, where I studied acting and history of Paraguay. Um, quite a class, I might, I might add. And, uh, you know, but on weekends, me and another friend were going up and, and seeing the Mabuhe shows. And there was, you know, I realized quickly, you know, it, it just erased the rest of the, any arena rock or stardom pretensions because I knew this was some of the best stuff I was ever going to see. And I was 
four feet away from where the sweat was dripping off the guitar strings, and this was the way to see music. And there weren't that many punks at the time. I had long hair for the first show, and then I chopped it off and put it in a bag and nailed it to my door, the outside of my dorm room door and stuff. I found that bag of hair a while back, too. <laughs> I can't believe I still have it. wonder what's in the DNA of that one. But uh, so, so, yeah, it, it was amazing, amazing stuff. And then when I went back to Colorado and worked in a nursing home doing the laundry, I'll never forget the aroma of that, and uh, got money to come back out here and uh, try to dive headfirst into punk. You know, at the very least, maybe I can get one record out, a little single with my name on it, and tell my grandchildren I saw the Dills before they played stadiums or something like that. And, um, yeah, I, I, by, by the time... Dead Kennedys was going, and we were third generation by then. I mean, Crime and the Nuns and Merry Monday were the first round, and then came Avengers, Dills, when they moved up from uh, Carlsbad, north of San Diego, and then uh, Mutants, Negative Trend, The Sleepers, UXA, Zeros moved up from Chula Vista. That was the second generation. And then the third one began with The Offs, not off singular, this was the offs plural, <laughs> different band, and uh, then came Dead Kennedys, and then came KGB, which was a first project of Johnny Genocide before two of them then morphed into No Alternative. Back then, the pressure was not on everybody to sound the same. That didn't hit till hardcore hit, and the audience grew younger, and at the same time, then later, the pop punk thing hit. And it was, oh, let's see, now we can try and get on the gravy train and be another Green Day. Or the, if our friends like us, we must be good. And in kind of a reverse thing that took kind of crept in um, was anybody who was too extroverted on stage had too much of a rock star attitude. So the performances with some, but not all bands, got boring. Yeah. But... Uh, in that respect. I mean, that's one of the things that drew me into the Phantom Limbs later was they were not boring on stage at all. And uh, so, but, but the, the, the pressure at first was every band must be different from every other band because most of the audience at Mabuhe Gardens and thankfully Dirk Dirksen made the fateful decision to make the Mabuhe all ages. He didn't have to do that, but he did. And that meant 19-year-old me and 16-year-old Johnny Genocide. He could do no alternative. And, you know, most of us were under 21. Right. Otherwise, there wouldn't have been that whole scene. That's what I wanted to ask you about. But, but, it, but, but yeah. it meant that no two bands could sound alike or nobody would be interested because the audience was made up of members of the other bands. <laughs> so uh, yeah, one time I was living with Don Vinyl, the sadly now deceased lead singer of The Offs, and... Uh, you know, he was he, he was kind of a good-natured company. We got some new songs coming out next time, Biafra. Let's see what you're going to do next and whatnot. It was that kind of thing. You need some We liked surprises. <laughs> right. I was always uh, intrigued by the whole Mabuhe uh, situation. Like, what? this is a Filipino restaurant that turns into a, a, a punk scene at night. How did that all come to pass? And then... You know, there's other stuff going on too. Vale was going around doing search and destroy the the zine and all that kind of stuff. That scene, yeah, the the was Mabuhe, really organic. I think I have no idea. 
idea the last time they served a Filipino dish to anybody. Because <laughs> when we were sound checking at six in the afternoon, there wasn't people dining on Filipino food. There wasn't even a chef. So they got away with the all ages thing with a restaurant license. So everybody got free popcorn, which also meant, very clever of the owner, Nessakino, to do this, he also salted the hell out of the popcorn. So all these punks who hadn't necessarily had enough to eat in some cases um, would come in and just gobble down the popcorn and then be all thirsty and buy more beers or drinks or at least try to bum them or something. Right. And uh, so that that was how they did that. I have no idea if they ever tried to serve food in there again or not. I have no idea. You, you talk about the eclectic acts. I, that, to me, describes alternative tentacles, what I've listened to over the years. And I listened to the darts today, and it was not what I expected because I never know what to expect. Is that something you're sort of deliberately trying to carry forward, not just with your work, but with, with the bands on that label? Well, the motivation to do a real larger alternative tentacles after the fast product version of California Uber Alice led to Cherry Red, another British label, funding an album for us. And then we got to tour in Europe when other people didn't. It's like, you know, and people, the fans were asking me on that first British tour, why aren't there any other good bands in America? And I'm like, hey, wait a minute. What about Black Flag? What about Flipper? What about DOA? What about this? What about that? I realized, oh my God, they've never heard any of this. And so I thought, you know, we really need to kick down and do a compilation. And the Let Them Eat Jelly Beans album was born. It was originally only supposed to be released overseas. And then it actually wound up having more of an impact over here and on the European continent, where all of a sudden there was, you know, more action that was actual hardcore coming out of, say, Finland, Italy, and Germany. And then, with the exception of Discharge, the British came to that sound later, because they had so many other things going on. Mm -hmm. But they, yeah, that, that, it was, it was kind of like, we need to give back. And then Alternative Tentacles, from the get-go, for me, was to put out artists who want to operate completely outside the mainstream, not have anybody telling them they got to make videos, not having anybody tell them, which some commercial punk labels actually do know, oh, that's too harsh, that's too negative, you can't say that, that's too negative, and stuff. And uh, we don't do that. You know, we want, we want people, want, you know, preferably it's somebody who's really good live, got really cool songs, different songs, good on stage, charismatic performance helps, and extra added dose of dementia. <laughs> uh, That's kind of what we're after, ideally. We put out all kinds of things. you still surprised? Do you get surprised by new acts? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I still try to listen to a lot of the demos that come in. I don't have time to go surfing people's band camps or, oh, listen to us on the internet. No, that means I have to sit and listen to you staring at you on my desk. No. Yeah. You know, I play demo gong show in my car with CDs or before that cassettes and stuff. And it's worth going through the iffy ones or yet another pop punk band that sounds like the Eagles with loud guitars, in which case out of my stereo it goes in the first 15 seconds. But uh, every once in a while something pops up that would just floor me. 
And the same with a live band. Like, I went to see one band at Cafe de Nord, and then, oh, there's this other band that's going to play called Spindrift. Oh, I'm here. I might as well watch them. And wait a minute, this band is really good. I can't even remember who the other band was that I went to see. But uh, I, if all goes well, the next Spindrift album is going to be one of the next Alternative Tentacles albums. Cool. Very cool. I'll look for them. Um, I got yeah, a they got a lot more. of stuff already. Got a couple more. Uh, first of all, I want to once just a shout out. You're wearing, I think, the same belt buckle that you were wearing <laughs> in the Chronicle photos from 1979. Um, Consistency. So. It's harder to find it under there now, <laughs> but uh, I like know. the shirt though. That's the best. Oh yeah. Jello Biafra yeah. is sitting here at the Chronicle saying, "Don't trust corporate media." Well, fair.org. Doesn't so. sound like any of you do either. You never know when you're going to get the Denver Post treatment or the, you know, they, that dude who bought the Guardian and shut it down and everything. Right. Um It's a tough business and, you know, I know it, 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 with I know. what's going on in the world yeah. right now, if if people aren't seeing what the the purpose is of what we do, whether we like a, a larger mainstream corporate media or uh, alternative media, I, I think it's pretty uh, clear. I'll tell well, you, well, that the, for the first time in my career, yeah. people like like us. Like people, <laughs> like I yeah. walk around and I tell people my job. Not jello. And he, he's not going to fall. They're not, not present company <laughs> excluded. I, I walk around and tell people my job. It used to be they tell me they don't get their paper, oh. circulation problems, or. Or some problem they have with the Chronicle. Or a it's Chronicle really department. hard to find a they Chronicle like in a now. store now. These grub go online, like <laughs> you go online. I don't want to live that way. There's there's a used lot to, of, you lot used of to be a stuff online. Right, you used to be a devout Luddite when I knew you many years ago. Has that changed at all? Some of that. Are you on Twitter? I mean, I hell no. <laughs> I mean, there's I mean, an alternative tentacles Twitter, and the alternative tentacles has a Jello Biafra Facebook page because there were so many phony ones out there. I've seen it actually. That, yes. Uh, you know, and sometimes some of the stuff that goes out is stuff I do send down to the label, post this, mm-hmm. you know, articles or weird yeah. pictures or whatever, but I've never looked at it. Yeah. You know, it's just not something I want to get caught up in. I mean, I learned that with all the ups and downs with Maximum Rock and Roll, where it can suddenly become like The Crucible or that play called Our Town. I'm like, I can either buy into this and worry about what every little detractor who's going to turn into a yuppie fuckwit in five years <laughs> thinks of me, or I can just be me. Because, yes, I've made mistakes. I'm not the world's most perfect or even at times likable human being, especially if I have to like me. But, um, you know, I think I've stuck pretty close to my beliefs from the get-go, which sometimes means not going as far off on the more radical than thou meter as some, because some people who go that far, it snaps the other direction later. You know, running into the, the ex, maybe the ex-leader of one of the, really important anarcho peace punk bands from here in the 80s and he was a stockbroker mm. and i looked at him and he was waiting for that look that i couldn't take it anymore i never wound up in that position admit in part and i'm very very grateful for this you know i have been able to live off of my music and my big mouth and bad attitude since basically when the mayor campaign happened Granted, rents are a lot cheaper than, you know, you pull it in 400 bucks a month, you can live pretty good in San Francisco, at least in <laughs> 1979 or 1980. You just have to not want to own a car, not have a drug problem, and <laughs> try and keep your vinyl addiction habits and ch- check better than I usually do and go for the, the bottom feeding. But um, 
I think uh, back to what we're talking about with newspapers, I think one of the things most endangered that really alarms me is as things get more, you know, budget cuts, deliberate dumbing down, corporate takeovers, some of them hostile, which the deregulation of those laws when Reagan was in had a lot to do with it, you know, when GE took over, which one was theirs, NBC or ABC, and Disney seized ABC eventually, thanks Reagan, and of course not renewing the fairness doctrine, which then Pelosi didn't try to do, and Obama got in, just, oh, off the table, off the table, off the table. What about Bush tax cuts, repeal those and get everybody reelected in 2010, which would have worked, off the table, off the table, off the table. Now, Nancy Pelosi, who badly needs to retire or at least be replaced as the leader of the House, impeachment, off the table, off the table, off the table. I mean, it's Pelosi and that whole machine who's now close to seizing the governor's mansion. That's what needs to go off the table. I mean, how can I vote for Democrats, except if it's somebody like Tom Amiano, or Mark Leno, when that party is still feeding us Feinstein, Newsom, Pelosi, Hillary Clinton, you name it. I mean, it's still, you know, Obama got an advertising award for his Hope and Change campaign, even beat out McDonald's that year. But um, any attempt to really change things, um, you know, like go one state over when he's in Minnesota and campaign right before the recall election for Governor Scott Walker, where he might have swung that because it was very close. He didn't do it. Oh, God, we don't want real change. No, 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 no. A lot of us do, though. So it's going to be interesting. I mean, as Jim Hightower put it, uh, you know, people think we need a third party. I think we need a second one. But back to newspapers, what's really getting lost is investigative journalism. When you get all the budget kits, I mean, when was the last time even the Chronicle paid for one of the investigative muckraking reporters to spend six months to a year on an important oh, story, see, that's why we digging need, everything up? We need to get you to subscribe because our investigative team is back. We, we have... We've actually broken a couple really big stories a with couple. foster children. There was a time when you were breaking several. them every day. <laughs> I think if you subscribed, or excuse right, me, that was the Bay Guardian. I think if you subscribed right now, you would be, you would be pleasantly surprised at the very least and impressed on the high end. Well, part of how I judge newspapers, the dailies today, how long does it take me to read them? Mm-hmm. And it takes even the Sunday Chronicle used to take a few days here and there of reading it all when you had the this world section and all those other things. And now it takes so less than an hour, maybe if I'm really trying to dig deep. I mean, and, and this is just, and this is a bellwether for all over the country. I mean, when I was younger and I guess much more of a news hound than most people I grew up with, even in Boulder, even in the turbulent 60s, which I'm so grateful I experienced so vividly that the, you know, the anti-war movement, civil rights, the dawn of environmentalism, feminism, gay rights, everything else, even as a little kid, I was kind of there. But one thing I remember was back when the, uh, there were only three networks, ABC, NBC, CBS, they were all independently owned, and they took great pride in their news departments. The news departments were not there to make money or sell ads. They were there to kick ass over rival networks' news departments, which means you got documentaries like The Selling of the Pentagon and all kinds of exposés on Vietnam. I remember seeing one that just... 
still sends chills down my spine of the sub-tent in San Francisco level living that farm workers in the central south part of Florida were going through. Well, I, wanted to, I wanted to get, because uh, Al's here, mm -hmm. and uh, you do read our sports section, I hope. There you go. I, I, didn't hope. Know, I didn't know you were a sports fan. <laughs> this is... One thing that blew me away. Fan we, is a relative term. You, you, we walked in and, hey, is Al Sarasovic here? And I'm like, <laughs> yeah, but what? we knew How each other from way back. I don't, I don't and you were originally a sports dude. Either. I wasn't. No, no, they I just was a, moved you to that. Right. One. I was a business editor. And uh, before that, I, you applied to be the editor of the Bay Guardian and they rejected you. <laughs> uh, I wasn't applying for the editor. I was applying for any job I could get oh, at the time. I, okay. I don't think I had any. Uh, All uh, right. Uh, background for that, but uh, I'm glad where we ended up, and I think it worked out good. But I don't remember us talking about sports back in the day very much. But uh, no. I, I will share the the weirdest uh, one of my weirdest uh, sports stories ever. I was sitting in the dugout prior to a, uh, a Giants World Series game, and I was sweating bullets as the game was approaching. And my cell phone rang, and it was Mr. Jello Biafra asking. Uh, What's going on, and uh, whether he knew, or whether we knew of uh, um, anybody might might be selling tickets for Game Four that year, and, I, <laughs> I, and I, it was a surreal moment as I sat there in the dugout and I received well, a call I, from a punk rock legend. It was awesome. I mean, that that doesn't <laughs> I was like, happen. You're not believe who's on the phone. That doesn't happen every day. <laughs> no, I mean, no, it doesn't. I mean, the Giants may not win another World Series in our lifetimes. This is true. I mean, they're kind of doing good right now, mm -hmm. but. Uh, you know, they haven't exactly bulked up and like like Yankees have or bothered to build a farm system like the Astros so have or know, something like that. you do know sports. He, he You're does. talking a farm system. I right. know some. <laughs> We're doing a tryout for our upcoming podcast, uh, Radical Sports with Jello Biafra. Oh, like, <laughs> well, there you go. It, it would be good. Uh, well, yeah, I, I agree with you. I mean, the, the, what happened with the Giants was amazing, and uh, to do it three times in five years, that might never happen. And, and be underdogs you how every lucky time. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I mean, they have found weird ways to win games, which is uh, always the good thing right you know and people who don't deserve to be there get there anyway because of teamwork and finding weird ways to win games that they shouldn't be winning the, the line around the dugout back in those years was uh, bochi shit and horseshoes they'd always say <laughs> <laughs> everything you tried would work as uh, i hear that in go. the clubhouse a lot do you follow uh, yeah, basketball I mean, too or no no not really You're just a baseball guy well, and um, because it was the only team in town, my dad was so into it and stuff, you could not escape the Broncos. Right, the football. Growing right. up in the Denver area, and when I was little, uh. part of what they were was they, they were like the Cleveland Browns now. They just <laughs> lost almost every game Every year, my dad would be in despair referring to him as the poor Broncos and this, that, and the other. But what that did is it just hardened this rabid fan base where in the old stadium, the erector set one where you could actually bounce the field by jumping up and down in the it's stands. The big horse. Yeah, they, they, um, the South Stands were the real cheap seats were, as my dad put it, the hard hats were all there. And that was where the snowballs were made. <laughs> sometimes with something inside, sometimes not. And so, you know, you're, and at that point, the Raiders and even more the Chiefs would take great delight in beating up on, running up the score against the Broncos <laughs> every year. And so they get into the South Stands, things, projectiles would fly. <laughs> Once finally Hank Strand, that super pompous, dapper coat of the Chiefs, let the Broncos score just to get his team out of that into the field. <laughs> then years later, long divorce from sports for the most part, I'm kind of feeling under the weather. It's a night off in New York before Dead Kennedy's plays. I think it was at the Ritz or something. And um, turn on the little TV in the hotel room. 
Oh, my God. Monday night football. I used to have the best Howard Cosell imitation in the whole school. Speaking of sports. <laughs> and I can't remember if he was still there or not, but it was Super Bowl champion 49ers versus the Broncos <laughs> in Denver. And early on in the game, the 49ers were doing what the Montana era 49ers generally did to people, and they were going to kick a field goal. And right when the field goal was going to be kicked, somebody with one hell of an outfielder's arm <laughs> hit the ball with a snowball <laughs> and right, knocked it over, I remember that. and they missed the field goal. Right, right. And then the three Monday night football people, all they could talk about for the rest of the game was what crude Cro-Magnon fans, <laughs> the, the Broncos fans were, how could people act like this? We've never seen this before. And I was just laughing the whole time. And sure enough, that field goal, it was a, something like a three-point game at the end. The Broncos won that game. Right, that and was a had, national yeah, crisis. That, so. that, we, uh, we weren't laughing. Yeah, in San <laughs> yeah but after after, when, when they started winning all the Super Bowls, it got to the point where punk rocker me, it was like you see somebody in a 49ers jacket come out of the bar, you cross the street. <laughs> you know, they weren't a wine and cheese team yet. Yeah. Right. Well, I, uh, I got to let Al finish his section here. I want to talk to get the show one more time. <clears throat> Sunday, uh, Joe Biafra and the Guantanamo School of Medicine. Great American and the Phantom musical. Limbs and the Darts. Yes, Great American Musical. And I think the Darts may start as early as 8.30. I'm not sure. And all the bands are worth seeing or I wouldn't have them on the bill. Awesome. <laughs> Happy 60th birthday to you. Thanks for well, coming hopefully. on the big event. Yeah, I didn't think I'd live to be 25 when I first moved here. Yeah. Well, welcome to the Chronicle. We appreciate having you on and uh, hope you'll come back. Hope this isn't your last visit. And uh, really excited to find out you know Al Sarasovic. <laughs> You are listening to the San Francisco Chronicle. Thank you to our guests, Jello Biafra and sports editor Al Sarasovic. Executive producer is Fernando Diaz, and our editor-in-chief is Audrey Cooper. Our music is The Tide Will Rise by the Sunset Shipwrecks off their album Community. Read our columns and subscribe to the Chronicle at www.sfchronicle.com. San Francisco Chronicle podcasts are on iTunes and other streaming services. Listen at www.sfchronicle.com slash podcasts with an S. <laughs>